Good morning. You know what? I'm going to have everybody stand up really quick. We're going to need to greet our neighbors. Good morning. Just take about 30 seconds. Greet your neighbors. Give somebody a hug. Amen, everyone. If you guys could be finding your seats, thank you for taking the time. I figure we get our blood moving a little bit, spread some love and encouragement. So great to be together this morning. Let's go ahead and uh, bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for bringing us together. We're so thankful for this week that we had. We're thankful that we get a chance to encourage one another we get a chance to spend time with you worshiping and singing. And uh, God, we're so thankful as well that we get the opportunity to eat together today. Father, I pray that you be with the service, be with the sermon, be with um, our hearts as we receive the message. I pray that you be with this time. In Jesus' name, amen. The sermon for today is called The Surface. And I'm not talking about the 1980s R&B Closer Than Friends music group. But that's a good song, though, too. I feel humbled uh, to preach the last sermon here at Whitney, but I believe that God always is moving behind the scenes behind what we can see, right? For, for today, I want us to um, consider that God has deeper purposes and motives and a glorious plan for his church, his people, and those that are lost. And I thought about what are some of the things that we see on the surface that has been happening right now in our lives as a church, as a body. For starters, we have to move from Whitney. We don't have a full-time minister. We don't have a region leader. We have experienced a lot of attrition and a lot of people that we deeply love left to other fellowships in and out of our family of churches. Our future is uncertain as a church. We will be together, you know, I thought, well, will we be together a year from now? Do we know for sure? It's kind of uncertain, right? We don't have a place to meet just yet. That's not locked down. <laughs> we got something to eat later, though. That's locked down. But where we're going to meet for church, we don't know yet. We may only have partial information that is being shared with us so that we may not the f know the full story of everything. Right? Doesn't that feel uncertain? It's irritated some of us. Maybe even ticked some of us off. 
Proverbs chapter 20 verse 5 says, The purposes of a person's heart are deep waters, but who has insight. But those that have insight draw them out. In Proverbs 21, 2, it says, A person may think their own ways are right, but the Lord weighs the heart. You see, if the purposes of a person's heart are deep waters, how much more the purposes of God's heart? If we can't even search each other's heart, how much more God's? You know, I have a friend of mine, his name is John, John Brandt. When you meet him and have a deep conversation with him, he may ask you, what type of cereal do you like? <laughs> He's got to size you up based on the cereal. I had some raisin bear on this morning, brother. <laughs> Sometimes we got to size things up, and, and that might even start with cereal, just so we can understand each other. Are we looking at the surface of what God may be doing? Are we making assumptions of what other people's motives are? Do we really know? Do they really know what their motives are? Proverbs 16.2, all a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Don't we always feel like our motives are innocent? And we usually start when somebody accuses us of something, well, I was just trying to, and we start to go, and we get in this defensive mode and explaining ourselves about why we did what we did and how truly innocent and pure our motives are. Do you, ever, do you guys have those experiences or just at my house? <laughs> just asking. I mean, you know, my employees are the same way. My household is the same way. I'm the same way. We're so pure and innocent in our own eyes. <laughs> the proverb teaches us that humans have a tendency to think that all of our own motives are pure, but that God sees what's really going on underneath the surface. Have you ever presented a false Motive to hide what your real motive was. There could be duality of motives, right? You have two motives, but only one that you present. Let me, let me give you an example of that. When I was interested in Imelda, my motive was, we were co-leading together, a Bible talk, and it was really great. My motive was to go and spend some time strategizing Bible talk, how we were going to save the world, and how we were going to meet the needs of the people in our Bible talk. And that was true. But the duality of the motive was I was also very interested in her, and it was really nice to spend time with her, right? So there are du there's duality of motive. <laughs> Y'all know what I'm talking about because you've been there. Is my motive this morning to make you suspicious about everyone and everything? <clears throat> no. <laughs> I'm trying to get you to think deeper about trusting God. Let's look at Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 and verse 8. It's interesting thinking about duality of motive, though, isn't it? Yeah. Acts chapter 6, in verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose. 
However, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against his holy place, I'm sorry, against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like that, like the face of an angel. At the beginning, I was going to tell you that my story was a bit Shakespearean today, because we're going to be talking about intrigue. We're going to be talking about conspiracy. We're going to be talking about people having motives. These are important when we consider what's going on. The synagogue of freedmen got into an argument with Stephen and couldn't stand up against his wisdom. They were likely offended that Stephen was preaching Jesus and they were preaching the law of Moses. Essentially, they were pitting the New Testament against the Old Testament. At least this is what I'm thinking was going on. Jesus himself said that, the, that he came to fulfill the Old Testament and that was not understood really by the freedmen, these Jews of the Sanhedrin. So because he didn't want to lose face, or maybe, or because they didn't want to lose face, or maybe because they were resentful because Stephen had so much more wisdom than they did, they decided to stir up some trouble. The freedmen cult decided to secretly persuade men to say that they heard Stephen speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God. What did that mean, if proven true, in the Jewish culture? And in their... Death. It meant death. You can't just go around, you just can't go around talking against the law of Moses. They had strict moral codes and laws. Stephen had to go in front of the Sanhedrin to stand a trial of sorts. He had to answer for what was going down. So the freedmen produced false witnesses who testified falsely. Has anybody ever lied against you to try to make you look bad, try to make sure that they didn't get in trouble? We have all kinds of motives about why we lie and about why we do what we do, right? This was scandalous! Doesn't it feel that way when somebody lies against you? You get so upset! This is scandalous! You're lying! Right? Don't you feel passionate about that? <laughs> we want to defend ourselves. So I want to tell you about and I want to remind you guys, there's something that happened back in 1994. Tanya Harding, you remember that? Yeah. On January 6, 1994, one day before the U.S. Figure Skating Championship, First Lady Singles Competition, Nancy Kerrigan was attacked in a corridor after practice session at the Detroit Co Cobo Arena. 
The immediate aftermath of the attack was recorded on a news camera and broadcast around the world. The assailant was Shane Stant, contracted to break her right leg. He turned himself into the FBI on January 14th. Stant and his uncle Derek Smith were hired for this assault by Harding's ex-husband Jeff Gillooly and her one-time bodyguard Sean Eckert. After falling or failing to find Kerrigan in Massachusetts, Stant had taken a 20-hour bus trip to Detroit. Nancy Kerrigan was walking behind a curtain when Stant rushed behind her. Using hands, he then swung a 21-inch ASP telescopic baton at her right leg, striking her above the knee. The intent of the attack was, so, was to seriously injure Kerrigan so that she would be unable to compete in both the national championships. Kerrigan was the defending 1993 champion in the Winter Olympics. Kerrigan's leg was not broken but severely bruised, forcing her to withdraw from the championships and forego competing to retain the U.S. ladies' title. On January 8th, Harding won the U.S. title. She and Kerrigan were, the, were then both selected for the 1994 Olympic team. Tanya Harding initially acted like she didn't know about what her ex-husband was plotting. She said, I had no idea. Later, she felt so guilty that she told on herself in a press conference of having knowledge of the plot. She was eventually banned from figure skating for life. There was racketeering and conspiracy. And again, this was scandalous. Let's look at Acts chapter 7. There's nothing new under the sun. Acts chapter 7 and verse 1. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where, he, where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at this time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. And they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation as they serve as slaves." God said, and afterward, they will come out of the country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and, and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Because of the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt, right? They had motive. What was their motive? They felt jealous. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. 
On their second visit, visit Joseph told his brothers who, who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt where he and his ancestors died. Their bodies <clears throat> were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. At the time, I'm sorry, as the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. And I'm, t and obviously I'm going to keep reading, but I want to tell you right now, jo he, Stephen is setting them up. Do you think they need a history lesson? He does. They don't need a history lesson. But he's giving them the history. In verse 19. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time Moses was born and he was no ordinary child. For, their, for three months he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to recon reconcile them by saying, men, are you, men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the men who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing, are killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. So Moses' motive in this situation, right? He wanted to get involved with his people. He wanted to protect them. He wanted everybody to get along, right? And so, you know, the Hebrew was like, Wait a second, are you going to kill me like you just killed the Egyptian yesterday? Like, get off me. You just got here. And verse 30 again. After 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight as he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses that they rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge. He was sent to be their ruler and delivered by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the burning bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt and the, and the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai 
and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him in their hearts, turned, um, sorry, they rejected him in their hearts, turned back to Egypt. But they told Aaron, make us gods who, who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. I mean, they even started acting like they didn't even know him now. In verse 41. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to their worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god, Raphan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had made them, it, I'm sorry, it had ma been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them where they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in hands made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will, you, will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things. So do you see the setup? He was setting up, he wanted to make sure that the Israelites knew, hey, your people are my people. I believe in Moses, I believe in the prophets, we're on the same team. And he starts going down, explaining further though, the scripture, look in verse 51. You stiff-necked people! Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the one or the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. Again, I'm sure that the Sanhedrin Jews were incredibly offended. First with the history lesson. <laughs> then, by Stephen, obviously, now his religion is much better and much superior, right? Because it's the one coming after. He was offended by, they were offended by the Christians. Look in verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I, have see, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. 
While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. So what's on the surface? Stephen offended the Sanhedrin council and they killed him. That's what's on the surface, isn't it? There's something deeper going on here. See, sometimes we think we know what God is doing. We think we have all the information and we can figure it out. And sometimes we can't. Look at Acts chapter 8. The last verse, it says, And Saul approved of their killing him. Saul, who was later to be going by Paul, eventually became the greatest apostle to the Gentiles the world had known. He helped spread the gospel to the entire known world at the time. But right now, he saw killing Christians. Look in verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. See, the Jews got so ticked off, not only did they kill Stephen, they were like, we're not done yet. They got so angry that a great persecution broke out. They scattered the Christians throughout Judea and Samaria. And Saul was literally dragging out men and women and putting them into prison. What's on the surface? He was destroying the church. He was zealous for God in the way that he understood what was going on. Wouldn't you say that that was zeal? Right? He was fired up for what he was about. But how did God use this? Let's go beneath the surface. We're almost there. In verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was, a gr so there was great joy in that city. You see, I want to remind all of us, me included, that sometimes God scatters. And he says, you have to go meet somewhere else. Or you have to change some things so that we will be encouraged or put in a position where we can preach the word to new people. To worship God maybe in a new place. Next week we get a chance to go out to a park and have a, a great service out there. 
Maybe we can invite some people. We're going to have a great park service, right? I love park services. We get to eat. Some of you don't like park services, but I love park services because we get food. There's sunshine. I don't get much during the week. I'm sure you can tell. I'm a bit pasty. <laughs> but God has a purpose throughout all of that. God had led them through and even despite that the Jews doing some things they didn't understand and, and, and they thought that they were fired up about God and they were killing Christians, God was working in that. God worked through and beyond the murder, the martyrdom, martyrdom of Stephen and persecution of the church to spread the gospel of Jesus to, again, eventually the entire world. The Gentiles actually didn't get a chance to even receive the knowledge of the truth until about Acts chapter 10. So a couple chapters later, I forget the time frame, but it was about 10 years after the church began. You guys remember that from your Bible studies. So if we focus on the surface of things, we focus on man. If we focus on God, we will know that he has a greater plan and purpose that we may not see right now, but God has a plan. Let's look at Romans chapter 8. It says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, it says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God is always working for the good of those who love him and for those who have been called. You see, at the start of the sermon today, I stated the following, that we have to move from Whitney. We don't have a full-time minister. We don't have a region leader. We don't have a place to meet and, and have a church after today locked down. We have experienced a lot of attrition and a lot of people that we deeply love have left to other fellowships in and out of our family of churches. Our future is uncertain as a church. I ask you, will we be together a year from now? Do we know for sure? We may only have partial information that is being shared with us so that we may not know the full story of everything. Do you think the Jews and the Christians at that time had the full story? They didn't. Luke, as he was writing to Theophilus, carefully investigated all these things, wrote them down so that we could have the knowledge. Maybe later, somebody will write the story about us in the book of life as God is reading out our story. How is God working in all of this for our good? Can we focus on God instead of man? Can we have faith in God instead of working about the, or worrying about the full-time employment of a person to lead us? Can you guys be committed to that? Can we preach the word wherever we go so that people can continue to be saved? Can we set up prayer times with people to encourage and connect with God and one another? Can we trust that if we don't have all the information that God will still bring about good? Can we still be faithful that God will lead us no matter where we are going to meet as a church?
Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. This is the last passage we'll look at. I wanted to share something with you too. On Friday night, Friday morning, I woke up. I'm getting ready for work. I'm getting ready to leave. Imelda wakes up. She says, honey, um, tonight we have free yoga at the beach. And I thought to myself, okay. And she said, do you want to come? <laughs> it's a setup, right? <laughs> I mean, I want to be with her, but do I want to go do yoga on the beach? And the answer is absolutely no, I didn't, especially after a long day at work. I got stuck in, you know, all kinds of stuff at work. And, I, you know, I was very stressed out, had to issue a verbal, I'm sorry, a written warning to an employee. It's kind of a last chance letter type of deal. And I was really stressed out because that's not fun, right? And so at the end of the day, I was running late and I called her, honey, I, I, I'm running late. You may have to go without me, right? I was starting to kind of think, can I even make it? And I, and I didn't want to get out of it because I knew it meant something to her. Otherwise, she wouldn't ask me to go. And she said, well, honey, I can bring clothes for you. And you can meet me there at the yoga place and you can change. I said, okay, honey, I may be a little bit late, but I'll go. So we go to the beach. Or we go and we meet at the yoga place. And Jasmine's there. Canella, she was at her first high school dance. Right? And then she was getting her groove on, but, you know. I assume that was what was happening, because that's what I'd be doing. So, so we get to this place. I go change, and we're running a little bit late. And, and you guys know where Sunset Beach is? Well, there's that big tower, you know, where that, they turned it into like an Airbnb. You can rent it if you want to. It's like $400 a night. I don't have $400 a night, but um, some of you may. But, um, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? Okay. <laughs> It was very, really, really awesome. Maybe someday I'll rent it. But the bottom line is we walk past that thing, get to the beach. It was the most beautiful day I'd seen all year. And we did our yoga thing, you know, and I'm struggling through the whole thing, trying, you know, Melda reminded me that I wasn't doing the poses right as she showed a picture of it to me. <laughs> you do the best you can. And... Um, but I would have missed out on the peace that came after, the memory that I have of thinking about God, enjoying how beautiful that ocean was, and stretching, and getting some stress relief from the day. God started working in my wife's heart early that morning, knowing what I was going to go through that day, so that I could have some peace later on that evening. You never know what God's going to do for you. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith... Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. What will your faith say after you're dead? 
By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah... When warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Does that sound familiar? By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. Is God faithful? And so from this one man, and he, is, and he, as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they, had been, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them, and may God prepare a city for us. Amen. Thank you, church.